Have you ever played this game? It's a game, typical party game, oftentimes used as an icebreaker at a party. Somebody in the group will pick a word, and then you go around in the circle, and you ask everybody to share what's the very first thing that came into their mind when they heard that word. So what, what, what does that word evoke in you? Simple question, or simple uh, word might be car. What do you think of when you think of car? It's really amusing the different answers that you get. You get the nostalgic answer. Some people think of the very first car that they owned. And my very first car was a red Toyota Tercel that my friends nicknamed Flo. The whimsical answer, oh, car, as in NASCAR, as in flying around the Daytona International Speedway at 300 miles an hour. That, I think that would be incredibly fun. The pragmatic answer, the pragmatic association, car as in my oil change is long overdue. Or isn't it interesting if you're in the market for a new car, say a new minivan, as you're driving around town, you notice the make and model of every single minivan you pass on the road. And so maybe you think of car and you think of you're soon to be purchased. Well, if I were to ask you the following word, what does it evoke in your mind? That word is temple. Kind of think through it for a second. Temple. The most biblically literate among us would probably immediately think of Solomon's temple, the great grandeur of Solomon's temple, or Herod's temple, the temple. It was smaller in Jesus' day, but you think of the the biblical temple. Uh, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, and it's probably 30% LDS. One of the first... Five temples built in the entire world was built in Mesa. So I immediately think of an LDS temple. Maybe if you've ever been to East Asia, you think of the strange shapes of a Buddhist temple. Who of us would have associated the word temple with, oh, the church? Temple, church, yeah. Temple, the the thing that I am part of. See, that's exactly where Peter wants to take us this morning. Did anybody answer that way? We we don't think of temple in in that sense. But what Peter does, and it's really remarkable, he looks across modern-day Turkey, and he sees these tiny minority congregations scattered throughout the, the area, and they were small churches. And we're talking about 40 to 50, maybe 20 people gathering together on Sunday morning. And he says to them, He says, you are the temple of God. You are the place where heaven comes to meet earth. You are the place where the presence of God comes to dwell. And that, friends, is an extraordinary thing to think about. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a.k.a. a temple. That's what a spiritual house is. To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, I think this is Isaiah chapter 28, 
See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. What a, that's, if you want a predestinarian statement, all the Bible, of, of sobering variety, that, that's it in verse 8. But, verse 9, you are, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what if we had a a contest? Everybody at All Saints walks, we travel down to the Boise River today, and the contest is who can bring back the, the greatest river rock, the nicest stone. Every one of us spreads out, and there are millions to choose from. I don't know if you, when the last time it was, you picked up a river rock and held it in your hand, but I'm always astounded at how smooth it is, I mean, how it's been weathered through the years. So we're all looking around for the rocks, and there's gray, and there's black, and there's white. I mean, all kinds of colors. Do you know which rock would win the prize for the the greatest that we'd find? It would be the rock that a little boy picks up and turns over, and on the underside of the rock is a bloom, a flower that's growing out of the rock. Right out of the heart of the rock, an orchid is blooming. And you look a little bit closer. How, do, how can that be? A rock with a, a flower coming out of it. And you see, then you look closer and you see um, blood vessels running all through the rock. And a heart in the rock that's beating and pumping and lungs that are expanding and contracting. And what that little boy would have in his hand is a living stone. Life out of a rock. Now, that is not what Peter's talking about in this passage. But I don't know about you. If you've read the Bible for many years, isn't it true? You can just like blow through. You could read so fast, just like you're reading the New York Times, just like you're reading your blog, a blog or your feed reader, that you don't take the necessary time to really consider the images that it's giving to you. Now, I mean, I came up with the wrong answer initially, but that was the picture that I had of, of a life coming out of a river rock. What does Peter have in mind? Well, as I started out, Peter is talking about the stones that would be used in the construction of an ancient temple. If you were to go to Jerusalem, and maybe you've seen pictures of the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is the only remaining part of the structure from Herod's temple that's in existence today. And the Wailing Wall is filled... What are the sizes of the rocks in the Wailing Wall? I mean, they're massive. They're 11 feet wide by 4 feet deep or 4 feet tall. They can weigh 500 tons. So when he's talking about the stones, the people in the first century, they would think of, of one of those massive, enormous pieces of limestone, the rock, 
But notice what Peter does. He doesn't want you to think about Jesus as an inert hunk of marble or granite or limestone. He wants you to always be thinking about Jesus as a living, breathing human being. That's why he calls him the living stone. Never, I I don't know, it seems to me that we always run the risk of objectifying Jesus. When you start calling him a rock, a rock of ages, a stone, when you start calling him all the different things that he's titled in the book of Psalms, for instance, it's easy to think of him as an it. In fact, you know, people commonly think of this being that they call God as some sort of vague, ghostly force which cannot be approached except through some sort of vague internal state called spiritual contemplation. And then what we do with the word Jesus is we use Jesus as just a placeholder for God. And so Jesus is kind of like this spiritual diffused gas in the air. And Peter won't allow us to think of him that way. He says, even if you're going to call him the stone, the rock, the fortress, Always think of him as a living stone, rock, and fortress. Because he's a living, breathing human being. And Peter can never get that out of his mind. He goes on. He calls him the living cornerstone. And uh, when you study it, you discover that the cornerstone in ancient stone masonry was the most important stone in the construction of any, uh, of any ancient building. The cornerstone, as you kind of guessed by the name, was at the corner of the building. It was the very first stone that you laid down, and it's from the cornerstone that you would build the walls off. So you would need to have a cornerstone whose dimensions were perfectly square. The cornerstone needed to be at a perfect 90-degree angle. If you had an 80-degree angle, then you would end up building the walls off of the cornerstone, and instead of getting a square or rectangle, you would get a parallelogram. (laughs) And nobody wants a parallelogram for a temple, do they? So the cornerstone was it was the largest stone it was the most it was the most carefully crafted stone I read that and I don't know if this is true or not but that masons would spend the same amount of time carving the cornerstone that they would spend on all of the rest of the rocks in the temple combined The cornerstone was was so critically important so the way that this would work I think the builders would go to a stone quarry and they would look for a suitable, what's going to be a suitable piece of rock for our cornerstone. They would look at, you know, here's a granite slab. Is this this it? And they might even bring in the architect of the temple. The architect would come and the builders would say, is this what you're looking for? And the architect would say yes or no. Is this piece of travertine what you're looking for? The architect would say yes or no. Imagine the builder and the architect spending Weeks, months, years searching a stone quarry, looking for just the right perfect piece of rock. And finally, the architect comes upon it and says, this is it. This is my my choice, prized cornerstone. This is what I want to build the temple with. And the builders say, we hate that rock. We despise, it's, it's, it's too small, it's not the right color. It's not the right consistency. So what do the builders do? They take that rock, the rock that the architect had chosen, and they cast it aside into the rubbish pile. They cast it aside as just a worthless piece 
of scrap. And that's what's prophesied in, uh, in Isaiah and in the book of Psalms. I wonder if, you know, Jesus Christ is described here as the rejected cornerstone, the re- rejected rock. I don't think that bothers us very much. Insofar as like, we, we don't, it doesn't bother us that the people of Israel rejected Jesus. That doesn't, for us, that doesn't invalidate his messianic claims. But I wonder, have you really, have you thought about it carefully enough? Like, think of it in this instance. What if somebody came to you and let's say you're in charge of an auto mechanic shop. A guy applies to your shop and says, I want to become a full-time auto mechanic. He was working at a previous shop across town, and he's been working there part-time for the last three years. And during the whole last three years, they never gave him a job. They never gave him a full-time job. But then he's coming to you, and he's saying, I want want to work full-time. Well, why didn't they give you a full-time job? I was passed over and again and again. Wouldn't that be a red flag for you? The people that know him best have rejected him. Isn't it a red flag for us that Jesus Christ, his own people, the people who knew him best, said, we don't believe this guy's the Messiah. No, the reason it shouldn't be a red flag for us, we should wrestle with the question, frankly, but the reason it shouldn't be a red flag for us is because it was prophesied 700 to 1,000 years before it happened. It says it in verse 8. Verse 8, the stone the builders, verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So in this image, you've got the builders walking through the stone quarry in the dead and dark of night. They can't see five feet in front of them. They can't even see the hand in front of their face, because it's that dark. And what happens to them? They they stumble upon this rock. They they trip head head over heels down into the ground, and their neck cracks and they die, it says. Or they're walking along and they don't realize that they're standing on top of the 20-foot-high cornerstone, and they take one step off the edge and plunge to their death. This is what Jesus said. Matthew 21, verse 33. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard. They built a a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then the owner leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At At the time of the grape harvest, the owner sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servant beat one, killed one, stoned another. So then the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his own son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to his estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, what do you think he will do to those farmers? And the people replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. And Jesus said to them, 
Haven't you ever read the scriptures? The, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Well, that's the first part of our passage, looking at the, you know, the picture of Jesus here. And I want to transition into what does it say about us? And you notice that Peter's not using a simile here. He's not saying to them that the church, their little churches that were gathered on Sunday morning, that those churches are like a temple. He says something that would have been utterly provocative. Those little churches are the temple. I mean, what is a spiritual house but a place for the glory of God to come and dwell in it? He says it to these little ragtag bunch of slaves and maybe a few noblemen wearing togas. He says, you are the dwelling place of God on earth. This is the place where heaven meets earth. It's it's not in the temple of Diana, of Zeus, of Apollo. (laughs) It's in your little assembly there. That would have to be one of the most extraordinary and ennobling statements they had ever heard in their lives. Because if it's true, well, if it's true, then it means the most significant thing going on in the universe is what happens in Christian churches on Sunday around the whole world. The most significant thing that takes place in this universe as we know it happens in little ragtag churches, uh, in grass huts in the Philippines, in elementary schools in Boise, in stately cathedrals, and everywhere else. Because God has said, I I am determined to come and dwell in the temple there. Brothers and sisters, I lose sight of this every week. (laughs) I mean, I don't come to church every week thinking, um, man, the glory of God is going to be in this place. Sometimes when we sing songs like, Oh, My Soul Arise, I will try my best to just start looking around, trying to find Jesus. Is he here? Can I see him? Are you here, Lord? Is your glory to be found here? I tell you, as a pastor, you know, many Sundays, it's just, there's a lot of anxiety associated with Sundays. I worry, is the hill going to be plowed and not icy enough for for cars to get up? I worry, is the sermon going to go well? I worry... Are we going to sing well? Is sound going to go well? Is music going to... I worry all of those, those kinds of things. I doubt, that, I doubt that very many of us wake up and say, I am going to the place where God has promised to meet me. That's a, in fact the case. This is the place where God comes to meet with his people. If somebody wants to meet God, he's not this like diffused spiritual thing out there in the sky or... He says, I have chosen to localize my presence with you in the temple. What I'm going to do now is something that I've never done in a sermon before, and I hope I probably will never do henceforth, and that is I'm going to quote from Justin Bieber. (laughs) (laughs) He was being interviewed months back. You know, he's a professing Christian. He was being interviewed about his faith, and he said, he said this, He said, I think a lot of people who are religious, they get lost in their religion. They they do church just to go to church. 
Now, I'm not trying to disrespect them or anything, but going to church doesn't make you a Christian. If you go to Taco Bell, does that make you a taco? He said it. (laughs) Very deep. (laughs) It doesn't make you a Christian just by going to church. Now, I know it's a little unfair to scrutinize the words of a of a non-theologian like that. But, but part of what he says is true, right? Going to a church on Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. Here's what I want you to do. And every, you've driven up to McCall before. As you, you're winding along. You know, oh, what's the river? There's the Payette, isn't it? And you finally come up out of the river bottom. And what do you, what do you come into? That just gorgeous, lush green grassland that's surrounded by trees. When you ever you start hiking around, up around McCall and Cascade, you, you'll sometimes come into a valley that's just full of beautiful grass. Well, imagine you're walking through a valley outside of Cascade or McCall, and there in the middle of your path is a two feet by one feet by one feet piece of stone, a perfectly square stone. Wouldn't it it seem like that was terribly out of place, sitting in the middle, the solitary middle of a grassy field, all by its lonesome? You look even more closely at the stone, and you can see it has been worked. It has been chiseled by a master mason, a master artisan. It has been polished. It's, It's an exquisite stone. It's a stone of of marble, of polished granite. If you were to come across a a stone like that in the middle of a field, you would immediately start looking around to find other stones because you would imagine that there had to have been some ancient structure, an older, maybe an old farmstead house or mansion. There, There has to be some other building that was destroyed that would leave on the ground precious stones like this. It, it is totally out of its place. And that's what I would say to, the, to so many Christians who believe that Sunday and church is just a, an unnecessary, worthless activity. Just like a hewn stone, it was never meant to sit in a grass field by itself. Uh, so we were never meant to stand on our own, like these solitary pillars, these solitary statues. The glory of a stone is when it's fitted in a wall, when it, when it creates a beautiful dwelling place for the presence of God. Now, I wish every Christian shared this vision. I, I hope that you know, when my kids go off to college and they're so tempted to stay in bed and just sleep the whole morning away, or when your kids go off, they won't go to church just to go to church because they were always taught, hey, they're PKs. Go to church because that's what you always do. But I would love for them to go to church because they believe that God has made them to be a stone in the wall of his temple. That's what he made you to be. And this whole American individualism thing where we're basically... I just create a customizable spiritual experience, whatever suits my tastes and needs and fancies. I know that there are, there are a lot of Christians who just bounce from 
church to church to church to church, you know, 20, 25 different churches. Or this Sunday, ooh, I like this preacher. He's at that church this week. And then I'll go to another place next Sunday to get my spiritual fix. It's, doesn't, it, doesn't it seem, according to Peter's image, that you're missing something about the purpose of God for your life? The glory of a stone is that it's fitted in the temple wall. It's deeply interconnected with the other stones. It, it is mortared together with the other stones. Now, let's explore that image for just a second. There are a lot of pluses and minuses with interconnectedness. Uh, I mean, one of the pluses is that you end up creating something more beautiful than just the solitary stone itself. Another plus is that if you have stones interconnected, you have something that is, is strong. And the weight of the entire structure is you know, spread out. The load is carried by all, not by, not by the one. But on the other hand, interconnectedness is very difficult because it means that what another stone does affects you. Like if another stone starts to crumble and go to dust, if another stone starts to shake, then the whole wall shakes. The whole... If another stone is missing in in the wall, it creates a gap in the wall, then there's total instability. And all of the load that would partially be carried by that one stone, it gets redistributed on all the others. And there's there's a great deal more pressure and instability on the whole wall. Um, You know, this interconnectedness is not easy. I I think we would all say that being your own solitary stone in a grass field is a lot easier than being deeply interconnected with one another. But, but that's not God's intent for us. Okay, I, I do want to say a couple of things about this building because we talked some about the building stuff at the congregational meeting. If what Peter is teaching us is correct, then obviously this building is not the temple. And this building, or frankly, any other building that we ever get into, it's just a building. It's not, it's not the temple. You are the temple. If I could bring you with me on Wednesday mornings when I come in here at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it's, it's dark still outside. This room is completely pitch black dark. It's cold. It's not well air conditioned or heated. Um, if you could see this room on Wednesday mornings, you would see that this room is dead. This room is, it's dead. The only thing that makes this room alive is you. Is you, the, the, the living stones in the room. Now on Sunday morning, by God's grace, this room is alive. But if you just, if you just look at the wood and the nails and the duct tape that holds this thing together, it's, absol- it's a totally dead piece of construction. Um, yours, you are what makes it alive. And, you know, the challenge for me as a pastor is to look out on you each week and see you sitting side by side, interconnected. I mean, the metaphor breaks down because right now, sitting side by side, you're like one wall, two wall, three walls, four walls, five walls. It it would work a lot better if we all stood around the outside of the room and there, there's the wall of the temple. But, but you're the, you're the temple. And again, if we met at Highlands Elementary, then the temple would be there. If we met 
who knows, if we just met in a tent, the temple would be there. I mean, I do believe that God wants us to build a new building, and he can shut that door entirely if he, if he wants. I mean, buildings, so why a building? Why, why does it matter? Well, I mean, buildings are, are useful for the purpose of which they're created. A building is useful to assist us in worship. If you've ever been part of a church plant before that met in a, in a local elementary school cafeteria and you smelled the remnants of institutional cafeteria food there, you know how massively distracting that can be. I mean, a, bu- a well-constructed building, good acoustics, good sight lines, all of those things can either enhance and assist or detract from God's worship. Another reason... So here's my building spiel. Another reason why buildings are important is because they are cultural artifacts that say to the rest of the world what we deeply value. Architecture, it says to the rest of the world, through that medium, what we believe is beautiful, good, and true. We don't just testify to things by our words. We testify to things by the way we shape uh, physical raw material, and that's, we want to say to the world something by virtue of the buildings that we construct. Finally, of course, buildings help us um, just do ministry better. I mean, right now, uh, I would love to do more youth ministry out of this place, but it's really not terribly conducive for that. But at the end of the day, if God doesn't give us a new building or, or whatever, That's okay, because the buildings, you're the temple. And Peter says, you're not only the temple, but you're the priesthood. And you're not only the priesthood, you're the sacrifices. He's like, why why use one metaphor to describe you when I can use (laughs) ten? He looks at it on his little churches and says, you're the whole kitchen and caboodle, or whatever that expression is. You're the whole shebang. You are... You're the walls, the living walls in the temple. You're the priest. You offer the sacrifices, the living sacrifice of your body, Romans 12, the, the sacrifice of the praise of your lips. Philippians 4, you ac- offer the sacrifice of your money. The reason, I don't know if you know this, but the reason why we do the Lord's Supper the way we do on Sunday, there are plenty of churches where you can only receive the bread and the wine from the hand of the minister. Because the, the minister is really the only priest in the room. So, you know, I have the sacred task of, uh, you, the only person you get it from is, is me in my, in my ordained. Well, I don't believe that. I believe every one of you, you're a priest and priestess of God. And just as in the Old Testament, the, the priest would take the food and they would put it on the altar and then they would distribute the food to the people. That's why you pass it among yourselves. That's what you, did you know that you're qualified to pass among yourselves the bread of heaven? Did you know that's what's going on on Sunday mornings? The bread of heaven. Yeah, and that's another reason why, if you were here for the congregational meeting, I do believe that you're qualified to read scripture in a service, and you're qualified to lead prayers in a service if you're so inclined, because you are priests and uh, priestesses, of, of God. Verse 9, notice all of these things God says about his little churches. He's, 
He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. He says, all of the things that Israel was spoken about in the Old Testament, you are its fulfillment. When he goes through that list, every single one of those, I could take you to the Bible citations where he says this of Israel. He says, it is now true of you. This is supposed to be your corporate identity. Um, is it, do they have these bumper stickers in Idaho? Uh, so when I, I, all my family, extended family, lived in the Atlanta area, and they gave me as a kid a bumper sticker that said, Georgian by birth, bulldog by the grace of God. Do we, do we have those in Idaho? Like Idahoan by birth, bronco by the grace of God. What we're talking about when you see silly things like that is corporate identity. Corporate identity. So you might, you might be an American citizen, but even more than that, you're an Idahoan or an Alabaman. You're an Alabaman first and an American second. You might be an orthopedic surgeon. You might be part of the fellowship of orthopedic surgeons, but you might corporately identify more with the fellowship of Christian bikers, motor, motor, motorcycle bikers. You might, you might be a father to your beautiful little daughter and son or the wife of your, your husband whom you're, you're proud of, but first and foremost, you're a, a San Francisco 49er. What we talk about when we, when we do those kinds of things is what do you prioritize as your corporate identity? And what I would love for you to do is the most natural thing for you, the way for you to process life is to pick one of these in verses 9 or 10. I, I am a royal priest. I am a king priest. I am a queen priest first and an Idahoan second or a Bronco third or, or a Vandal fourth. I am, I am I'm a chosen new ethnicity. I'm not a Chinese first or a German first. I'm a new ethnic, he says, a new nation. Um, Yeah, that's what I would love for every one of us to process our lives that way. I'd love for you to refer to yourself that way self-referentially on Facebook. Is is that your, what's your corporate identity? It It is that. And did you know that What's the purpose of the Christian life? I'll stop, I'll stop here. Um, what's the purpose of your life? If you are a living stone in the temple of God, what is the purpose of your life? The purpose of your life is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The very best thing that I can do as a pastor is stand up in this pulpit on Sunday mornings and say, let us worship God. <laughs> The day that that no longer is my primary task or is no longer our church's central action is the day I'm searching for a different profession and we should just become a country club or a social, social networking group. The purpose of your life is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night light. For once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Amen.